Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. I'm very pleased that he agreed to an interview. His name is Dr. Dean Radin. He is a doctor and chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences in Northern California um, and a distinguished professor of integral and transpersonal psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. Uh, the book we're going to talk about today is titled Real Magic, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe. He's also the author of a few other books, Supernormal, Science Yoga, and the Evidence for Extraordinary Psychic Abilities, and Entangled Minds, Extrasensory Experiences in a Quantum Reality, and also The Conscious Universe, The Scientific Truth of Psychic Phenomena. Mr. Raiden, are you there? I am here. Awesome, great. Thank you very much. So, um, you know, for people who haven't heard your name or heard of your background, maybe you could take a little time to discuss your interest in this type of phenomenon. My my interest, you know, every time I hear a description of my bio, I'm, I, part of me is thinking, what? <laughs> what? What am I doing? Because you know, all through my my scientific and engineering uh, career, we never talk about psychic phenomena except in a, it, as entertainment and as making fun of it. Uh, it has not been part of my personal experience. I mean, I've had some experiences that are, might be psychic, uh, but probably not more so than anybody else. Uh, but when I was growing up, no one ever talked about psychic phenomena. I can't recall any episodes that would have sparked my interest. Instead, it, it all started from reading a lot of science fiction, which I still do, uh, and also fairy tales and mythology and the equivalent of Harry Potter, although that wasn't written yet when I was growing up. So my interest is really driven by curiosity, uh, just like it is for many scientists. You, you want to know everything there is to know, and some things are more curious than others, and I've never encountered anything more curious than psychic phenomena because it doesn't seem to fit in with the scientific view of reality, and yet it happens all the time. So that that's what attracted me in the first place, and that's why I continue to be interested because after many years of study, I've come to the conclusion that this is not simply a matter of coincidence and it's not a matter of, of mistakes of memory and all of the usual explanations that are given it's something else and that makes it even more curious than than it was before and i think that that's one of the important aspects of the book you wrote is that you tie this this notion of magic into a scientific framework instead of you know just keeping it by itself would you kind of expound upon the, the science that you've used to look into these types of phenomena? Right. So first of all, I have to explain what I mean by magic. Okay. So magic is, uh, for most people, most of the time, it's either Harry Potter or Harry Houdini. It's either fictional or illusionary magic. Uh, it is extremely popular, as we see reflected in the entertainment business and in fiction, it has been perennially uh, a, a, a theme that's used in fiction. So we're talking about a multi-billion dollar business, and one has to think about wh why are people so interested in this 
brand of entertainment. So one answer is that magic offers the possibility of wish fulfillment, and who wouldn't like that? That's why fairy tales are interesting. Uh, but the magic I'm talking about is the magic that is part of the esoteric traditions. So the, these are still vibrantly alive today, but they, they carry names that most people will recognize, things like Hermeticism and Gnosticism and the Kabbalah, alchemy, astrology, so on. Mm. Rosicrucians, Freemasons, Theosophy, you name it. And today, uh, seen largely in books on the law of attraction, affirmations, and also in medicine. Mind-body medicine is part of this long tradition, of the esoteric traditions. So those esoteric traditions are basically a cosmology. They're a story about reality and our place in it. Science is also a kind of cosmology. It's a story. It's a certain worldview. It has certain uh, theories and practices. So in the esoteric traditions, the practices were all about magic. The magic is in three forms. It's in divination, which is perceiving through space and time. So the, the usual stereotype is something like gazing into a crystal ball. Lots of other methods, though. The second practice is force of will, which is using your intention to change some aspect of the physical world. The, the stereotype there is something like a ceremonial magical uh, thing with a pentagram and people chanting and that sort of thing. And the third practice is called theurgy, which is uh, communicating with spirits. And again, the stereotype is evoking something out of nowhere to, to help you, some kind of a spirit. So those are the practices of the esoteric traditions. And the reason why, since I've spent most of my career studying psychic phenomena, what I realized a couple of years ago is that psychic phenomena and the traditional notions of magic are identical. Interesting. It's the same thing. And so, one I mean, in, in retrospect, this is obvious to me. But at the, at the time, I was a little bit surprised. Well, how, why am I surprised to learn that psychic phenomena, which is experienced by practically everybody in the world... Why Why am I surprised that that's the same as magic? And part of the reason is that it's magic is an esoteric idea. Esotericism is, or is a collection of ideas that have been suppressed. First suppressed by religion for a couple thousand years, and now suppressed by science also. So th this never shows up, basically. You never talk about psychic phenomena. You never talk about magic as real in the academic world. Or in the right. scientific world. Or, or you so never it, would admit it either, right? Even if you believed it. You were taught yeah. not to talk about it. Gotcha. Yes. So, and so there's a taboo and that keeps it, that keeps it squashed. Uh, so to give one example, the, there's a, a big book called a Handbook of Parapsychology for the 21st Century. It's a big format book, a big fat book, something like 40 or 50 articles in it, which is the state of the art on the scientific study of psychic phenomena. That book, in the index, does not have the word magic. It's as though it is so well suppressed that it doesn't even show up in the scientific discipline that is studying the phenomena itself. So I, I was surprised at that. That's why my book is called Real Magic, because it's talking about the relationship between scientific studies and the very phenomena that are at the core of magic. 
Right, and I, the early kind of or 20th century research into parapsychology did not use the term magic or did not equate it with esoteric traditions. Would you agree with that? Yes. Okay. Yeah, in order to keep the credibility of the science as high as possible, any relationship to occult practices or esoterica, certainly the word magic, it was it was banned basically. If you if you want to maintain credibility in what you're doing, it has to look as pristinely scientific as you possibly can, which means that you use the terms, the jargon, the words, and so on. Uh, and so that's why it never showed up. Interesting. So, um, so mag- you know, magic you can see it through a scientific lens, and you have had experience with parapsychology and how uh, how to how to investigate it for for decades. Is that correct? That's correct. So yep. you, you go back to the what's called the Stargate phenomenon and uh, or, or the Stargate s- studies. Or I, I think it was a a catch-all phrase for a variety of parapsychology. Uh, tests or investigations. Could you talk more about that? Yeah, Stargate was a, a code name for a classified project funded by the, the CIA and the DIA and the Army and a couple of other places. It was a part of a 20-year government, U.S. government program to, first of all, see if reports that had been heard about the Russians and about the Chinese, uh, their use of Psycho- of, of psychic effects, whether there was a threat in in those reports, and also to see if uh, experts at clairvoyance could be used for psychic spying. So the 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 answers to the two questions is as far as threat goes, not so much of a threat, uh, but as far as the use of espionage. Uh, with clairvoyance, which was called remote viewing as a euphemism. Right. Uh, was it a real thing? Yeah, it was. it's a real thing. We, we now know, uh, because the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore, uh, that uh, we had a program for 20 years that was very successful. The Russians, as well, had a similar program that was funded to a much larger extent than ours was. Uh, China is still somewhat of a mystery. We don't know if they had or or have today a program, but it wouldn't surprise me if they did. I also know that there are many other governments who have been closely tracking these kinds of abilities. Uh, be, whether they have programs or not, I don't know. They would be classified. The only reason we know about our, our program now is that in 1995, most of it was declassified, and that's why I'm, I'm allowed to talk about it. Gotcha. So it was declassified in 1995. Do you think that governments around the world are still involved in this type of parapsychology investigation? Well, I would say that uh, as far as programs go, I don't know. If they're classified, then almost by definition, I wouldn't know. But as far as hiring consultants, individuals who are exceptionally good... I would be very surprised if that was not happening in virtually every government in the world. Interesting. So I can assume that this type of this interest in this subject is still happening. Um, and you are, or I think you were the head of the AAAS, the Parapsychological Association. Is that right? Right. So the Parapsychological Association is the international organization for scientists and scholars who are interested in psychic phenomena. 
1969, it was elected as an affiliate of the AAAS, which is the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the largest organization of scientific bodies or scientific members and affiliates in the world. So that the AAAS in many ways is considered the, the scientific mainstream. So one way to, to respond to critics who sometimes say that parapsychology is a pseudoscience is to simply say, well, that's your opinion, but meanwhile we are part of the largest mainstream scientific organization in the world, and we were elected to be that. Yes, and, and so I've been, I'm now the president again. I've been a president five times in this organization, so it's, it's part of a long-term interest of mine. Right, and, so, and you've, kind of, you've worked for the government, Navy, DARPA, SRI, some of the kind of well-known uh, groups that are in the United States that, you know, have these advanced studies. But, uh, so, as, you know, that was kind of the intro to, to magic, witchcraft, and you, I mean, one of the fascinating parts of the book, which I really enjoyed, I'd definitely give it five stars, but uh, is how you kind of go back through the history of of these kind of psychic phenomena that you laid out, such as clairvoyance, precognition, psychokinesis, and and tie it into past history. I thought that was that was chapter four. I found that very interesting. Going back to you know the Greeks, the Eleusian and Eleusian. Illusion, Indian mysteries. Sorry, it was a tough one to say. But also, kind of how uh, it goes back. But and I've, I found it fascinating that the name that you use for the Noetic Society goes back to William James's varieties of religious experience, which I read thirty years ago. But right. uh, you know, can you you want to talk about how how this this kind of past history is influencing the present? Well, when you look at the history of science. If imagine it's hard for us to imagine today, but if we go back maybe 500 years, nobody knew anything about how the the physical world worked. Uh, but we we didn't have stories. We we had we always have had stories. As soon as the the first thinking human was around, they made up stories to try to explain uh, what is this place I find myself in. And who am I? And what's my role here? All that. So those are these origin stories and cosmologies. Well, one of the first, I mean, besides the the everyday experience that most people have, today it'll be roughly the same in terms of every everyday experience. The work, of course, is different. A lot of things are different in society today than a thousand years ago. But if you if you took a child today and raise them as though it was a medieval time. They would be almost exactly like people in the midi in a thousand years ago. Or if you made it even more primitive, you could make it as like a caveman. Children are born pretty much a, a blank slate right. uh, and and they're they're one step away from living in the forest basically. So our our experience is more or less the same as it has always been. And one of the things that impressed people uh, from the very beginning, I'm talking about 10,000 or more years ago, back to shamanism, were mystical experiences. So somebody would take a psychedelic or go into some kind of a trance state and come out of it and with a, uh, an awe-inspiring story about the nature of reality. And so the, the interesting thing is that those raw experiences of, of mystical experiences, those have essentially been the same. 
from the beginning of the first human who could talk about it to today. It's the same kind of underlying experience. So it's something that's very, not necessarily human-centric, but it's it's there. It's a thing. It's an experience. Mm-hmm. From those, the stories that spun out from them became our cosmologies. And so that that's where we get we get terms like hermeticism, which is a story about how reality is stuck together, and the same with the Kabbalah and all the all the the rest of them. Right. So, so, th- so from that history, you as you start moving through time now, wh- what you find is that everything was considered magic, supernatural, driven by the gods, because that's the only model that we had. Right. The next stage, and this is roughly a thousand years ago. The next stage was when people began to discover that there were certain regularities that didn't seem to require gods. Things like magnetism, things like sparks and lightning and natural repetitive things that people could do themselves. It was called natural magic because we still didn't understand what magnetism was, but it was a natural thing. It didn't require Zeus to make the magnetism. From that... You, you run quickly into astro- to, uh, alchemy, uh, which became chemistry, right. astrology, which became astronomy, herbalism, which became the pharmaceutical business, and pretty much every other discipline that we know started out as pure magic and then natural magic and then became refined into the disciplines that we see today. But in that process, something was lost. So what you find in, in alchemy astrology, herbalism, the element that was lost was the consciousness of the person who was doing the practice. All of them was were deeply involved in the consciousness of the practitioner. And today, in science, we think it doesn't matter. Well, maybe it does matter. And that's, that's one of the themes then of why I think we're, if you project into the future, we're going to rediscover what we think of as medieval proto-scientists had learned, and but then it was left aside. Right. So, like, the, there was a theme in the book, disenchantment, to kind of a re-enchantment of that past uh, position of the of the the importance of the individual involved in that those practices. Right. So, yeah, I mean, and you kind of talk about kind of uh, some of these interesting personages, the society Society for Psychical Research. So people involved in this kind of paranormal—I don't—I don't like to say paranormal, but parapsychology—have been around for for over a century. Right. The systematic scientific study of psychic phenomena started with the Society for Psychical Research in London in 1882, and at the time it was kind of in a transition period between. Uh, a lot of interest still in spiritualism and the idea of spirits and paganism and so on. And the beginning of science is becoming a giant powerhouse. So at the time, it was the cream of the crop in England and actually in Europe in general and in the U.S., uh, the the top-tier scientists, politicians of the day were, were the founders of the Society for Psychical Research. Right, you listed William Today, James, right? William James. Yeah, William James right. and, and a bunch of other of the, the, the leading lights in the United States and, and elsewhere. Okay. So uh, there's a, a big difference then. From 1882 till today, the, the study of psychic phenomena has become more and more marginalized, although that's beginning to stop now. 
but it became marginalized to the point where it wasn't that the interest went away. The interest has never gone away, even at the, high, the, highest, the highest levels of science. Uh, but the taboo became stronger, and you simply weren't allowed to talk about it. So that's what changed. It was unacceptable socially to talk about it, even though the interest never went away. Yeah, it was still happening, you know, in private homes or in areas people were still involved in those types of practices. Yeah, I found it fascinating, the story of uh, Mary Patterson, who became Mary Baker Eddy. I didn't Mm -hmm. know that she came out of, you know, this kind of uh, psychic phenomenon. I didn't know that. Well, it's, it's sort of, it's not exactly psychic phenomena. The uh, what she was involved in was uh, a, a holdover from uh, mesmer, from mesmerism, right. which is a combination of today we might call it energy medicine, placebo effect, hypnosis, and some psychic effects, all kind of jumbled together for the purpose of healing. So she was healed mentally, healed from long-term illness, and she put a religious spin on it. So Christian science is a religious practice, but underneath it is this notion that basically it's all mental. You, right. you, you can heal yourself purely mentally, which actually for a long time was considered kind of laughable by the medical mainstream, but it's now coming back in vogue in a slightly different way. It doesn't have the religious overtones, but the mind that mind and body are very closely related to each other is now no longer laughable. Right. It's, it's and, definitely being talked about with greater frequency and, and, and by doctors, by the medical right. community. So, yep. yeah, it's fascinating. Um, I mean, kind of moving along, like you, you distill the ideas of magic down to, to, to mental skills, attention and intention. And, I, I, you know, I found it really fascinating how you kind of broke down kind of you, the kind of modern magic practice. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm I'm not sure what you mean by well, modern. I guess magic. I would say that you know I I wasn't aware of these these, you know that you were interested in affirmations and kind of concentration, power of the will, were two things. Um, let's see, yeah, and I also I, there was a I had a note here that you worked for a, a company that was funded by Paul Allen. I found that to be very interesting as well. But mm-hmm. uh, let's see. Maybe we can talk about how you talk about the scientific experiments that you've used to verify the the, the occurrence of psychic phenomenon. Okay, so the, here's the connection then between the the magic and the psychic effects. So in, in magical practice, there are a number of ways of, of factors that are thought to influence the nature of the magic. So one of those factors is belief. Another is imagination, another is intention, attention. There's like five or six different factors which are in the magical lore uh, repeatedly said over and over again that these are the factors that, that will affect how effective the magic is. So in parapsychology, most of these factors have been studied. and so, But not in a magical context in mind, but simply that we know that how open you are to psychic phenomena determines how well you do on a performance test. Right. And you, you call that sheep and goats, right? The difference between sheep goats? Yeah, the classic study is a sheep goat experiment where the sheep are the believers in psychic phenomena and the goats are the skeptics who don't believe. So in the, the classic uh, experiment is usually done in a classroom. You have a bunch of, of students 
you give them a, a questionnaire to, uh, to to learn how much do they believe in ESP. And now you can separate the class into two, two bins, people who believe and people who don't believe. Now you give them all exactly the same test, some kind of ESP test. And then you can, when you evaluate the results, you will find that the people who believe in the ESP do better from terms of their performance on the test than the GOATs. And oftentimes you'll get a statistically significant difference between those two groups. So what that tells us is that your belief is related to how open you are to a, a particular experience. So if you believe in the possibility that you can get information from a distance, like clairvoyance, you're much more likely to be able to do that than if you don't believe it. So the belief acts as a kind of a perceptual filter. Yeah, it's fascinating. And the uh, when when you have the the you know subjects working these different tests, I mean, you have a variety of different tests that you've used and have had positive statistical correlations. Can you talk about some of the applications, these tests that you uh, provide to subjects? Okay, so I talk about two different kinds of experiments in the book. Uh, The currency in science is independent repeatability of effects. So I, I do review several classes, five or six classes of experiments that have been done many, many times over many decades and where there are meta-analyses which are are able to determine how repeatable an effect is and also how close to chance the result is. So the classes of studies I talk about are looking at things like telepathy and remote viewing and precognition and so on. In each case, the odds against chance for what is seen in those repeated studies is beyond a billion to one. So that's the so-called Six Sigma level of of reliability. So we that's how we can say with high confidence that certain kinds of elementary psychic phenomena are real from a scientific perspective. But the other types of, of studies I talk about in the book is uh, how can we test whether belief really is an important factor in, in magic? And so we could, I talked briefly about the sheep-goat experiments, but we ran another experiment to look more closely at the role of belief. So that experiment was was involved with uh, the act of doing a blessing or a prayer. And then one of the things I point out in the book is that magical practice never went away. And one of the easiest ways of seeing that people still do the same kind of magical practice today as they did a thousand or two thousand years ago is at watching anybody who's doing a prayer. A prayer is an intentional act. So you also, the second thing about prayer is that many, many prayers have to do with food and beverage. There's like prayers over the food and beverage or the food and beverage play a part in the, in the ceremony or something, right. in which case you can ask, well, why are people praying over wine or why are they praying with water? Why, why do they do that? Well, one answer is it makes us feel good. Another is it's simply part of a ceremony. A third possibility is it actually does something to the substance itself. So that's what we wanted to test. And how did the, you know the results of that test? What were they? So w- one test I can t- I'll talk about. I I can talk about all of them in great detail, but I don't <laughs> right, think we sorry. have time for that. Right, so one test I'll talk about is uh, praying f- uh, for tea 
This was part of a tea ceremony in China, in Taiwan. The tea ceremony is already an intentional act. It's theater. It's it's a it's a performance. It's a ritual, it, a ritual too, right? It is a ritual, yeah. and it has intention in it. You're the focus of the people in in the tea ceremony is not simply watching like a TV show, but being part of this intentional act. So we we thought, okay, uh, tea in Taiwan is the most favorite beverage. We created a a big batch of oolong tea, which is one of the favorite types of tea in in Taiwan. Uh, and then we had, did the experiment at a Buddhist temple in Taiwan, and 200 people participated, and the three senior Buddhist monks at the temple. So we asked the Buddhist monks to uh, t take the, the tea, separate it into two batches, and then to bless, to do a prayer, to bless one batch of the tea so that anybody who drank it would feel an elevation in their mood and more, more vigor and less fatigue. And then the, the other tea was set aside as a control. So now we took the two batches of tea, uh, put them in little bottles, and then in a double-blind fashion, gave the bottles to 200 people. So we distributed these bottles among 200 people, half of whom got the blessed tea and half did not. Nobody knew what they actually got. They, they had beliefs about what they might have gotten, but they didn't actually know what, what kind of tea they got. So over the course of one week, all 200 people were asked at the, the first two days of, of the week to not drink the tea yet, but just re record their mood at the end of the day. And there's a standardized questionnaire that's used worldwide for recording mood. So the first two days, they record their mood. The next three days, they would drink tea at 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. At the end of the day, they'd record their mood. And then the last two days of the week, they would just record their mood. So the hypothesis here is that people drinking the blessed tea, even while they don't know what they're drinking, would actually report better mood than the people who are not drinking the blessed tea. And that is what we found. Interesting. So, so but the next the next part is we asked them, well, what do you think you were drinking? Because now here's where belief comes into play. So the people who actually got the blessed tea and they believed that they were getting the blessed tea, they did whoppingly good. They did like a thousand percent better than, than the baseline. The people who got the very same tea, they got the blessed tea, but they believe that they didn't, flat chance. So th this shows then that people getting the same magical phenomenon modulated the effect strongly by what they believed they were getting. And for people getting the non-blessed tea, the control tea, there was no effect at all in any condition. didn't matter whether you believed it or not. Fascinating. That's interesting. And I mean, one of the other examplars you, you use for this kind of parapsychology effect is the feeling of being stared at that I think all listeners can relate to, that they get this kind of sense that somebody's actually watching them. And I think you use that as an exemplar for this type of phenomenon. I think that was interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so a, lot of, a lot of things that are called psychic... Uh, have analogs in everyday experience. Feeling of being stared at is one. Gut feeling is another. So people report that they they get a funny feeling in their their viscera, their their gut, and if they pay attention to it, oftentimes that acts like a signal that something is about to unfold that requires their attention. Yeah, that's interesting. 
the, the, you know, that feeling of uh, precognition too. Other people get that, like there's going to be a car crash or today's going to be a bad day. You know, right. I think that that's very common as well. You know, I, right. you know, so this that's a kind of psychic feeling. Um, you talk about a variety of different. You know, do you want to talk about any other tests or? I mean, you had you had something interesting that I saw in the book, which was a website called what was it? Psy Psy Grant. Gatsai. Gatsai, yeah. Can you talk about that? That was interesting. Yeah. So Gatsai versus to take off on Got Milk. Gotcha. Got uh, PSI. Gatsai, yeah. org is a website that I, I wrote in the year 2000 uh, to provide a suite of simple Psy tasks. Um, all of them are ultimately based on precognition because that's the only way you can make a fair test online. Uh, but they they are cast in the forms of precognition and a kind of dowsing test and a simple ESP card test and so on. And so since the year 2000 when it started, it's been running ever since. We have about 250 million trials, uh, individual trials that people have entered and contributed by about 300,000 people in every country in the world. Anywhere where you find the Internet, people have done this experiment. And what that does is not only provide the largest database of psychic effects or at least psychic tests in history, but it, it gives us a huge amount of data to look at how things progress over time. Uh, does it matter where people are? Does it, and we also give us questionnaires about their beliefs and so on. So it, it gives us the opportunity to do a big data analysis. Uh, of course, now the notion of big data is is popular everywhere. Right. Data mine, yeah. Data analysis is now even a kind of a computer science subset. Yeah, so we we can. We haven't done this yet, but we can use deep learning techniques to look for patterns in the data, and we've already found a number of interesting effects. And what were those? Well, for example, in the in the card test, we we put in a hidden feature. Uh, I, I mean, it's no longer quite so hidden when I tell people about it, but uh, you still you, you can't see the hidden feature when you're doing it, so it doesn't matter. So the hidden, the hidden feature in a card test is normally when you look at, you have a game that you have five cards, you know that one of them is going to be selected as a target, so it's a precognition target. And your task now is to choose the card that you think will be chosen later. So you do that on the screen, you get feedback as you do it, and people can enter as many trials as they like. What, what you don't know is that when you look at five cards on the screen, the assumption is that each card is likely to show up in the future with the same probability, namely one in five, or 0.2. But that's actually not the case, because before each trial, one of those five cards is selected to come up with a much higher probability than 0.2. It'll be as high as 0.9 in which case the four other cards are going to be the remaining probability. They're all very low probability. And so the reason for doing that is because we want to know how does precognition work? If you have five equally likely targets, then you, don't, you can't have any clue of any type to know what the future is going to be. You, you have to use what amounts to pure precognition to somehow sense your future because all all the cards are equally likely. But now consider a condition where one of the cards, unbeknownst to you, the computer has set a probability of 0.9 that it's going to show up. So it's very likely that that card is going to show up in, in your future, 
will will you be drawn to that? Like, will you somehow know that the probability of one of these cards is higher and that's the one you're going to choose? The reason why it's an interesting question is because it allows us to ask whether precognition perceives the actual future or the more probable future. Interesting. And this is it's an unresolved question, right? We don't know if you're precognizing the likelihood of something or the thing itself independent of its a priori probability. So since that we have an enormous amount of data on that, that, that question, uh, when you do the analysis, you find that there's actually evidence that people are being attracted to the more probable card, which suggests that precognition might be seeing the probable future rather than the actual future. Wow, that's amazing. Have you noticed, like, uh, in farming, kind of farming these subjects who are taking your test, have you found individuals with uh, kind of a high magical talent? There's certainly a, a difference in performance. The If you track individuals, you can assess that some people are systematically good at, at the test. When you plot them and according to their performance level, what you end up with is very close to a normal curve. Gotcha. Just just the same kind of curve that you would see for sports talent or for musical talent. Interesting. No geography, nothing like that. Age? No clear effects by age or gender or location. No. Wow. That's amazing. So that's uh, GOTPSI, G-O-T-P-S-I dot com. If anybody wants to go check that out, feel right. free to do that. Um, yeah, that's amazing that you, you know, you can just, people can access that anywhere. Um Let's see. We're kind of coming to the end. We're in about 38 minutes. We've got about 10 minutes left. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to cover or maybe cover? I don't like to like go through your entire book, but right. to cover kind of some of the earlier stuff you've, you've... I mean, you do you do touch on quantum effects upon, you know, this kind of psychic phenomenon. And what is the kind of extrasensory experiences in quantum reality? Well, that that book and what I've mentioned here also is that uh, our modern physical way of understanding reality uh, actually provides a slight open door for the possibility of psychic phenomena, and it's it's related to uh, quantum non-locality, which is sometimes thought of as uh, as entanglement. That we now know that when elementary particles interact and then they separate and go their merry way, that they're actually still connected in some way. Connected is not quite the right word, but we don't have the right word for it. What we know is that if you have two photons or two electrons or other particles, and they interact in, in any way, that they remain connected, but the connection is no longer within space-time. It's, it's called, that's what the term non-locality means. It's something that is connected outside of space and time. And the reason why that's interesting is because the, the strange thing about psychic phenomena is that these are experiences which are not bound by space or time. That's why they seem so spooky, right? Telepathy is you're mentally connected with somebody who might be a thousand miles away. Precognition is you're somehow able to perceive something which is not in the same time frame and so on. So there might be a a relationship here, an important relationship between elementary physical effects, which are non-local, and experience, 
some aspects of which are also non-local. So it raises the question whether these non-localities that are seen in the subjective experience and the physical world, are they the same thing? So that was more or less the theme of my book, Entangled Minds, to, to look at physics underneath here to see if what we're seeing in physics is actually reflecting in what we're seeing in the mind. But, but you mentioned uh, what else would I talk about in the book. Well, one thing that, that is not explicitly talked about in the book uh, but is relevant to it is that when, when I, I write a popular book, of course, you, you're obligated to go out and see if you can find endorsement blurbs. Given the topic, I could have asked my, my buddies who are involved in human potential uh, and personal development and things like that. I, I could have asked them for endorsements. But I decided that because the book is really about science, it's about science, really, uh, I wanted to ask my buddies who are scientists and philosophers. So I, I have endorsements from two Nobel laureates, one in physics and one in chemistry, uh, by a former program director at the National Science Foundation, which is the premier funding agency for science in the United States, uh, from uh, major uh, prize winners from the National Institutes of Health uh, and the National Academy of Sciences, and about a dozen other uh, top-tier academics in many disciplines. And I, I, went, I, I wanted to get endorsements like that to show that if, if some people would think that magic has nothing to do with science. The psychic phenomena is so far away from science, it may not even be a science, to show that that's actually not true at all. That the, the top tier of science in the United States and even worldwide is extremely interested in these ideas. And for people who have read the book, who are clearly in the mainstream of science, they recognize that what I'm talking about here, some of it is ancient, some of it is contemporary, but it's pointing towards what we think will be the future of science. That's why they endorsed it. Right, and that's interesting because that's what you're kind of one of the, the points you make in the chapters is that you looked at in the future. I think you look back. You you set a date in the future where magic would be more uh, used as a scientific practice than in the present day. I think that was in your intro, if I remember. Correctly. Yeah, in the in the preface, I wrote a, like a little science fiction sketch of of a future where uh, where people were amazed that looking back to today, that uh, we didn't understand consciousness very well. We didn't think it was very important. And how wrong we were, and so this this future time, uh, I forget whether it's like a hundred years from now or something like that, uh, is the beginning of a new era in science where what used to be thought of as ancient superstitions about psychic effects and magic were were now understood in scientific terms, and it changes everything. Yeah, and you do spend a time kind of defining these terms, magic, defining it against magic with a K, uh, counterposing it with, against science, and just kind of, uh, you know, thinking that out. I thought that was real interesting. I saw one of your people who, who remarked on the book is Jacques Vallée, somebody I've written about as well. He's quite a notable name mm-hmm. uh, up there. But uh, it was interesting, maybe on the Noetic Sciences, when the few minutes left, he was started by Dr. Edgar Mitchell, and he... Um, I think I read somewhere he said he tried to psychically communicate with the Earth while he was on the moon. Did you know uh, Dr. Mitchell? 
Yeah, yeah, I, I knew Edgar. Uh, he did do a uh, ESP experiment in the space capsule on the way to the moon. Uh, the results were significant in the direction we call psi missing. So there were people on Earth who were trying to guess what the cards were that he had in the capsule, and they significantly underguessed. They guessed incorrectly, but in a significant way. Interesting. So th- this, from a statistical perspective, this is just as meaningful as correctly guessing in a positive direction because we know what chance is so you could either guess too many correct cards or too few correct cards and both of them are interesting because it shows that what happened is not chance it's something else well the something else usually in these cases is considered to be a reflection of something psychic gotcha fascinating is there anything else that uh, you would like to share or talk about uh, things projects coming up in the future uh, many, many projects, so so many, I <laughs> can't even deal with them. Uh, I would just say if people want to know more about the book, you can you can read, like on Amazon, you can see inside the book, and I think in Google you can, you can read bits of the book. Uh, otherwise, go to realmagicbook.com or deanradin.org, and you can read the endorsements and, and see if you'd like to get it. And by the way, the audiobook version... Of, of this book is actually selling better than the paperback or the Kindle version. The reader is the same uh, voice artist who, who reads the Dan Brown books oh, great. And, man, and many, many others. He's read hundreds of, of books. And I had the opportunity to select the voice reader and with, I had samples of them reading and wow. Great. He's the kind, he's cool. the kind of guy who could read the phone book and you just be crawled with it. That's so, great. so that's available on audible.com. Is right. that correct? Gotcha. And so the author again is Dr. Dean Radin. The book is Real Magic, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe, available on Amazon, Audible. I highly recommend the book. I learned a lot. Very interesting. And Dr. Radin, I really appreciate you being on the show. My pleasure. Have a great day. <laughs>